Music was good. Miss Sandy, thank you for that wonderful uh, uh, special. That was really, I love that end. That was really kind of cute. So if you have your Bibles today, I encourage you to open up to the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to be there this morning as uh, we're coming to uh, the end of this series. I've got a couple more messages on this, and then um, we'll be off and running somewhere else with the Holy Spirit's leading. But uh, this morning, we're going to be in Philippians. Um, I've entitled this message, um, Chasing Jesus. Um, and that's what I feel like uh, I'm doing many times in my life. And I can tell you, Philippians is one of these interesting books. Um, over the years, I bounce in and out of the book of Philippians uh, because I can't quite handle a lot of times what I read. You would think four little chapters, five little, how many chapters is that? Four little chapters, you would think that that it would be an easy read, right? It would be something you just you grab and go like you do at the grocery store, you know? It's really easy, but it's not. Um, and it doesn't take you more than a second to realize that Paul's writing from a different place in his life, in his ministry, in his spiritual walk. Now, we know that the Scripture is given to us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit was writing through Paul and using him, but in the Philippians, we see more of his heart than in any of the other books. And there are some deep, deep passages. Um, sometimes I'll read through Philippians, and I'll get to chapter 2, and verse 7. And that's the great, what we call, theologians call this, and I know, Phil, you appreciate this, it's called the canonic passage. Um, because it has, because it says in there that, and you read it, we're not going to be preaching this, we're just, but I love this passage. I can't be in Philippians and not look at it. And it says, he, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Um, the idea of emptying yourselves have been, has been hotly debated by theologians for the last 2,000 years since the ink dried on the page and Paul sent the letter to the Philippians. This has been questioned. We don't know exactly what it means. And I read that and I wonder and I, I puzzle over that. But that's not where we're going to be at this morning because we could spend the whole time just looking at that. We can go a little further and see in the beginning of chapter 3 uh, where Paul is laying out his pedigree. I love the pedigree that he lays down as he starts to, to share about who he is. In verse 5, he says, look at me. If anyone has the mind to have confidence in the flesh, then, then I have more than anyone. Look at his pedigree. Look at his, his resume, if you will. He says, I was circumcised after the eighth day um, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Those are powerful phrases. Those of you that were in our Sunday school class this summer, um, and you know we were going through the life of Paul, you know that for him, the zeal of the Lord was the most important thing in, in, in how, he, how he ministered through God. He chose to follow God, to be that, that individual that was filled with zeal to bring this message of unity and singleness of purpose of the one true God to the world that needed it. And when he encountered Jesus Christ on the, on the road to Damascus, he realized in an instant who Jesus was. And he realized in a second where his faith needed to be, still worshiping the one true God, but now with Jesus as part of the Godhead in a way that he'd never experienced before. 
And Paul continues to write uh, some amazing things in that part, but that's not where we're going to be this morning either. See, we're talking about chasing Jesus. And I guess the opening question I need to ask you guys is this, is what should occupy the thoughts and be the focus of the energy of us as we call ourselves genuine Christians? Where should our focus be? Where should our thoughts be occupied? Where should our mind be centered on? And I think that's the question that Paul was, was leading the, the Philippians towards as he got to verse 12. And this is where I want to sort of spend some time this morning. So starting off in verse 12, chapter 3, the book of Philippians, Paul is continuing his train of thought. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold for that which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reach, behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, when I read this, we're going to go a little further, but I just want to spend some time, camp out in these few verses here for a few minutes. I mean, I realize just three little verses, but you can see that the theology that's packed in that, and I think all of us can find something in here. You know, I remember we were going through a crisis in our family. Um, my sister, who has lots of problems, and I've talked to you about it before in the past, she, she struggles in many ways in her walk with, with the Lord and her walk just normally. And she showed up on our doorstep in need of help and rescue from an abusive husband. And we didn't see a way out for her. So my father and mother said, can you get her to New York? We're in Florida. Can you get her to New York? We can take care of her from there. So my wife, I had to work. I had to provide, you know, I had to provide a living for my family. I couldn't get off work. Couldn't just take a moment and, and, and run my, my, my sister all the way to New York from Florida. It's a 24-hour drive if you did it straight. So my wife stepped up and said, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I'll take them up there. And so she packed all the kids in the car. She packed my sister in the car, her two, three kids in the car, and off they went up to New York on an adventure that I still sometimes feel like I pay for now. You know, um, I, the memory is very raw in Sandy of that meeting. It was not good, but it was something that we felt as a family we needed to do. And while she was up there, the Holy Spirit was working on me. Because I was in the middle of a spot, spiritually speaking. I wasn't sure where God was calling me to do. I didn't know what direction we were going. I was in between churches. I was struggling in my, in my, in my own personal walk. I had been burned by a church that we had, we had been attending. And, and I just felt like maybe God was sidelining us. You know, like, like our time in the spotlight was over with. We had a moment to shine. We didn't shine very brightly or maybe too brightly too quickly. And, and we faded too fast. And we felt like maybe it was time for us to step back and let other people start and do things, you know? And we were at that point, and I was driving home from my job, and a, ro- a song came over the radio that I had never heard before. The song was called simply The Chasing Song by a, a singer-songwriter by the name of Andrew Peterson. And I pulled over the car because I couldn't, couldn't drive anymore because the tears were flowing too strong. And the song was so mighty and powerful to me at that moment. And God gripped my heart. I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole song to you, but I just want you to hear some of the words of this. And, and I encourage you to look him up. 
He's a wonderful writer. He says, now and then my feet take to wandering. Now and then I prop them up at home. Sometimes I think about the consequences. Sometimes I don't. He says, I realize that falling down ain't graceful. But I thank that the Lord, I thank the Lord that falling's full of grace. He says, sometimes I take my eyes off Jesus. And you know that's all it takes. He said, I wish that I could say that at the close of every day, I followed Jesus, but I can't. He goes on in the song to say, well, they say that every race can only have one winner, and you have to pull out front to win. And God knows the only time I'm winning is when I'm chasing him. He goes on in the final parts of the song to say that Jesus chased the money men. He chased his father's will. He chased my sin to Calvary, and he caught it on the hill. When I heard that song, I couldn't move. I couldn't think. I could barely breathe. Because I began to realize that what should occupy my thoughts and the focus of my energy should be chasing Jesus. Not pursuing the silliness of life. Now, I realize we all have to work. We all have to feed ourselves. We all have to do things. But there's, there's things that we can do while we're doing all those that allow us to focus ourselves on Christ. When Paul was writing this, he says, now that I have already, now, not that I have already obtained it. That word obtained is, is an actually an interesting word. He actually repeats it several times in this section. And you begin to see sort of the heart of Paul as he begins to pour himself out on the page. He's already told us all that he has done to, to deserve a place in heaven. But he came to the conclusion that all the things that he did was useless. And the only thing that he ever did that was right was embrace Jesus Christ. And he says, and look what he says. He says, I have not obtained it. You know, that word that he uses there is, uh, the word is, is dioko. And it, it, it means to, to, uh, uh, to hold on to, to grab a hold of, to pull into yourself. He says, I have not yet obtained it. But look what he says. But I'm pressing on that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when you read this in the Greek, and I know all of you guys are Greek scholars, and so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to, as, as peers here, right? Because um, we all read. I don't read Greek. I really don't. And most of us don't. But when you look at this in the Greek, it is interesting because these phrases that he's using are indefinite. They're, they're ambiguous at best. And they've caused a lot of people to really make some huge questions. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, the first question that comes into my mind is, what in the world was Paul missing? What was it he was chasing? You know, he never really defines it. He never really lays it out. And in the Greek, there's no actual article connecting these, these adjectives. So he says, I'm pressing forward to something. I'm, I'm reaching for something. I'm, I'm seeking something, but I, I have not yet obtained it. And I don't know what it is, but I know that I need it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is Paul, Right? This is like the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. This is the guy that stood in front of kings and witnessed. 
This is a guy who was stoned for his faith. This is a guy who was shipwrecked, not once, but a few times. This is a guy who willingly went to the headsman's axe for the faith. This is a guy who wrote a good portion of the New Testament while he was in prison. If anybody could call themselves a worthy candidate to be a follower of Christ, if anybody could say that they have reached the pinnacle of their Christian walk, if they've made it, if they've arrived, if they've, if they've achieved something great, Paul could be that one. But yet he sits there and says, I don't know exactly what it is. I can't quite lay my finger on it, but I'm reaching for it nonetheless. You get a glimpse of what he's looking for in verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But that's still indefined. How do you know Christ? How does any of us know Christ? All we really know is what the word tells us, right? All we have is what what Matthew and Mark and and the Old Testament that gives out a glimpse of it. Truth of the matter is, we don't have near enough to know Jesus the way I think Paul wanted to know him. He's looking forward to it. He knows that there's going to be a point in time where it's going to happen, but as of yet, it hasn't quite happened. So three times he uses the word obtained in different ways in this passage, as though he's reaching for something, as he wishes to move closer. Notice the word that he says where I press forward. You know, in the King James, it says follow after. In the New International, it says uh, pursue. In the, in the New American Standard, the New King James, it says to press on. It's a weird phrase. It's only used like really here in the New Testament. And it's hard to get a good sense of this. And it's not used very often in classical Greek, but it's actually more of a military term. It's like a, it's a term that's used to, to move, impel, to, to, to move quickly towards a, a, um, a specific point to arrive at a destination it was written to a bunch of greeks in greece that's where that's where philippi is at these people every year had the olympics that they dealt with and so the idea of running a race and pressing towards a goal was something that they could readily grip into Yesterday, I had an opportunity to go to Seward to watch Caleb play football. I enjoy watching him play football, and I enjoy what our team wins. And we won in overtime, barely, but it was good. But, you know, the last plays that they were doing, the last couple series of plays, um, the team that Caleb was on was, it had the ball. They were on the, the one-yard line. They had seven seconds left to go, right? And they had three plays to punch it through, but with seven seconds, you're not going to have three plays. And they're sitting there, and they're on the goal line. All they really have to do is, you know, fall forward. And I, I, I was watching this, this play out in front of us, and, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to be preaching on, and I'm thinking about Paul and the idea he wants to press forward. He wants to reach out and grab a hold of, of what it is that he's looking for. And I watched this team as they all strained. Is, like 11 guys, is there 11 guys in the football? I don't know. So they had, all of them were stretching forward like they wanted to do it. But, you know, the other team had a say-so in it, right? If they're out there by themselves, no problem. But they had another set of guys that was opposite of them that had a, had a different opinion about how the game was supposed to end. And they didn't want that to happen. And they stood tall and they pressed forward. And the team pushed and they pushed back. And there was that, that tension that happened. And they didn't make it. And everybody's like, what now? The game's over. It tied score. We can't let this stand. We have to continue to press forward. 
So the referees got together. They tried to figure out what was happening next. They didn't know. This is not something that happened every day. There was some serious, Chris will tell you, there's some serious discussion. They're like, they're pulling out books. They were trying to figure out what to do next. Well, the conclusion was they had overtime and Caleb's team won. They did really well. But the idea of pressing forward, reaching into this goal was something that Paul is trying to arouse in the images and the mindset of his people. He wants them to understand what this is like. But I think this is not just more, it's not just him trying to arouse the people that are reading. I, I read this as though this is Paul speaking about Paul in a time when Paul was struggling with what Paul was, right? I feel like this is, this is really Paul's essence, his heart. He says, I, I'm pressing forward for something. Brethren, I don't look at myself, verse 13, as, as having actually gotten it. I haven't actually laid hold. But one thing I do know, he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind me and I'm reaching forward for what lies ahead. This is the biggest challenge that most of us face in our Christian walk. Everybody that's been a Christian for any length of time, and I know some of us are saying, well, I've only been a Christian for a couple weeks, so you're, you're good right now. You're like at the golden time, right? This is the best time to be a Christian for you because everything's new, you have nothing to base it on, and so every day is like a wonder. Well, eventually, like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, you're going to get beyond that sort of that honeymoon phase with Jesus, right? And then it's going to roll into that rut stage, you know, and nobody likes it. Married people don't like that, and teachers don't. Nobody likes to be in that sort of that rut where you're like, okay, we're just sort of going through the motions. But this is the challenge that we fit. And we get into these ruts that are so deep and so powerful that we have a hard time turning either way, left or right. We get stuck in these channels of thought and ideas. And we start looking back at the beginning of our walk as where we want to be, right? And so rather than pressing forward like, like, like Paul tells us to do, we then start glancing over the shoulder. And at first, it's just subtle, right? We just look back once or twice, and we just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to look back just, 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 just one glimpse, right? Just one glance. I mean, I know it was really cool back there. Maybe I can just sort of reach behind me just a skosh, right? Get a little bit of that energy and power, bring it forward, and, and use it for right now, right? But before we know it, we start looking like we're looking back. But we know a character in the scriptures that look back. And I don't know how that worked out for a rule. I don't think it did really well. What about Lot's wife? She couldn't seem to face forward. She couldn't look at what God was going to do. She had to look back at what she thought he had already done. Of course, she was judged for it. I'm not saying that if you look back in, in, in your past, you're going to turn into a pillar of salt. But who knows? Maybe it will. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? That'd be a huge object lesson for like the next children's sermon. That would be fantastic. I could bring in a, a pillar of salt and say, this used to be, Phil. You know, that would be nice. You know, of course, who's going to lead worship? I don't know if that'll work out real well for us. I'm picking on you a lot, Phil, and I'm sorry. I know you got big shoulders. You can handle it. <laughs> there you go. You barely hear what I'm saying. Fantastic. So, but the thing is, you know, looking back, and we as churches, we get into that trap so much. And you can see, even in this church, although it's not as bad in this church as you see in other ones, I've been in some services, especially on the East Coast, where you've got buildings that are really old, right? I mean, you think this building is what, 40, 50 years old, 60 years old? I don't know. How, how old is this building? I don't know, it doesn't matter. It's old, right? And we think, oh, this is a really old. It's probably one of the oldest churches on the peninsula, aside from the Greek Orthodox one around the corner. And you would think this is a pretty old church. And for Alaska, it is. But you go to the East Coast, you've got churches that are 200 years old. They were, they were here before the United States was founded. 
And you go across the water, you go to other areas, and you have churches that were so old that William the Conqueror worshipped there in, in 1080, what, 1046, 1086, 10-something? There you go. Thank you, brother. I knew you knew. 1066. I mean, that was a long time ago. I've stood in a church that William the Conqueror worshipped in when he first conquered that part of England. I've actually preached in that church. That's old. That's a pedigree, right? And it seems like the older a church gets, the more plaques they acquire, right? And you see them, right? And everywhere you go, you can't turn without a brass plate saying, given in loving honor, memory of so-and-so. And and, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's nice to celebrate where we've been. But when we spend all of our time looking at the plaques of the past, we we miss what God's going to do in the future, right? We miss where he's going to take us. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He says, I'm forgetting about the past. I'm moving beyond that. I want to press towards the future. Truth is, As Christians here in the United States, we're all standing on the shoulders of spiritual giants. The reality is we're more like spiritual midgets, all trying to bicker as to who's tallest. But the tallest midget's still a midget. It's the way it is. I can't say it any better than that. We've got a long way to go to where we can say we're the giants for the next generation to stand on. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, you may think I'm great, you may think I'm strong, but I'm weak. And I don't even know what I'm reaching towards, I just want to know Jesus more. Now Paul goes on, he he gives the church uh, some exhortations, he gives gives actually three things. He gives a call for unity, he gives a, a, a warning of misconduct, and he gives an encouragement to stay and stand fast. You see this in verse 15, he goes on, therefore, let us therefore... As many as, as many as are perfect have this attitude. If in anything that you have a different attitude, God will reveal it also to you. Verse 16, however, let us keep living. Keep living by the same standard which we have obtained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. From, well, I'm going to stop right there. Brethren, join in following my example. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. But if you rewind that a little bit, going back to verse 13, you start off with, as many as are perfect. Another area that really irritates me. It's translated in different ways in different uh, versions. I think one version, I think the King James has this. I'm not sure. I I, I didn't write it in my notes. But I believe it says uh, in one of them, mature. The word there in Greek actually means mature. It means uh, uh, those of us that have come to that mature understanding of who Christ is. And this is something I think we miss in our churches. We're so used to being spoon-fed everything, right? Especially in the church. And we just assume that we don't know anything, that we're just, you know, theologically ignorant. That's not true. All of you guys are theologians. Everybody in this room has an opinion about the Word of God. It may be the wrong opinion. It may be a weak opinion. It may be an unformed opinion. But all of you have an opinion. It's your duty to grow that opinion and strengthen it, bolstered by the, by the reading and studying of God's word, by, by spending time with him in prayer, by understanding what the spirit is doing within you as we mature. But sometimes we sit here and we say, what I really want is a three-point sermon with an easy application, right? 
Just tell me, one, two, three, and what do I do, right? So I can walk out of here with a happy heart, knowing that if I do one, two, and three, and I execute X, my week will be good. But the truth of the matter is, it's not my job to give you guys applications to God's Word. It's your job to find the application in His Word. It's my job to train you and equip you to look for it, right? And so I'm digging deep. I expect you guys to dig deep. You shouldn't come here being the first time you've opened God's Word is is like 10 minutes ago. You should have come into the building fully immersed. Why do you think that I make Casey find space in the bulletin to put next week's sermon title and verses in it? I do that because I want you to read ahead. I want you to be thinking on this. I want you to be focused on what God is calling you all week long. So we come together, it ought to be like a, a coming together of, of like minds. You've spent the week meditating on the scripture ahead, and now we get to culminate this. Because let me tell you something, I spent two or three weeks on this one little passage, right? And so I'm, I'm like fully into this. So when I come into this, I expect you guys to be fully too. You're only going to get out of a message what you've put into it. And if your involvement in the scripture is, is the 30 minutes that you sit here in the seats, wow, that's kind of weak, right? That's, that's, that's not good. Look what Paul says. He says, those of us that are mature, those of us that are perfect. You know, part of me wonders, this is, a, like, a, like, a, this is like, a, like a letter. It's a letter, right? We don't have context. We don't know the way Paul wrote this. You know, we don't, we don't have any body, body language. We have no tone of voice. We don't know if Paul's writing this sarcastically or if he's writing it genuinely, right? We have no idea how that is. He could be saying, for everybody out there that's perfect and mature, right? He could be saying that. I don't think he is, though. I think if you're following the pattern of this, this, this train of thought, Paul's laying out his heart, Right? He's saying, look, I'm not very mature, but I'm getting there. And I goes, I know you guys aren't quite there yet, but you're getting there. And as we draw closer to Christ, as we find that more maturity in Christ, we need to have this attitude. We, if we have a different attitude, God will show us, but we need to have this attitude. And look what he says, keep on living. However, let us keep living by the same standard. I don't like this in the New American Standard. It didn't translate well. I think um, um, I don't think any of the versions really do a good job. The word there is is um, is stoicho or stoicho, um, and it it's it's actually a very it's Paul uses a lot of military terms in this, and in this one it's an actual military term. It's used by officers commanding their troops when they're asking them to march in unity, lockstep, moving forward. And everybody that knows anything about history, you realize that the Roman Empire had, they had the monopoly on, on, the, on the army building world for a while. They knew how to create a group of soldiers and conquer a territory. And they didn't do it by just you know, opening up the gates and letting their soldiers run willy-nilly at the enemy, screaming and hollering and waving swords. They didn't do that. That was their enemies, right? Their enemies were, were oftentimes screaming, running around, waving swords. And what did, the, what did the Romans do? They turtled up. They got together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, shield in front, shield to the side, shield over the head, spears sticking out. And they one, two, three, four, all together, everybody, lockstep. And they moved in that flannix one step at a time, and they, every time that those, those enemies would rush at them, waving their swords around, they would impale themselves on these spears as this, this unit of men would move forward to accomplish the will of their emperor or their general. 
This is the image that, Christ, that, that he is bringing forward to us. We need to, not just, not just, and that's why I don't like this, keep living by the standard. We need to walk orderly and disciplined. We need to, in many ways, and Tom will tell you, we need to march, right? How often does the army of God march? We can't, I can't even use that word. I guarantee you, if I were to walk outside into a, the public arena, and I were to even, even mention the word army of God in a way where a reporter or somebody that is all weird, weird and sensitive would hear that word, they would automatically get their hackles up, they would run for cover, and they would think some crazy with a gun is about to show up. But truth of the matter is, that's what we are. The scripture is pretty clear. You know, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our enemy is, is a lot more powerful than a sword or a gun. But we've got somebody within us that's greater than anything that he can throw at us. Amen. And I'm telling you now, I've seen this darkness this week. It's rough. And I'd like to say this is the first week that's ever happened since I've been to the, been to the peninsula. Wouldn't that be nice, Tom, if we could say this was the only week? We could say, it's done, it's behind us, it's over with. And a lot of you are saying, well, Sunday's the first day of the week. Well, it is for you, not for me, okay? This is the end of my, of my week, and I'm getting ready to look at another one. And let me tell you something. I already know that the enemy's ramping up his, his attack against us. You know why? Because we're stepping into his territory. Because we're, we're advancing the cause. We have reached out and said we're going to have a children's ministry. Not because we need a children's ministry. Not because we love doing Awanas. Not because we like dressing in primary colors and teaching kids basic Bible verses. It's because we basically know that the enemy is out to destroy our families and our children. And if he can destroy our kids at a young age, he will destroy every single family that they're connected to at older ages. Let me tell you something, dads, husbands, your daughters are the most precious thing you have. And the enemy will do everything in his living power to destroy her innocence and rip from her her ability to be a family later. I can't count the number of people I've had in my counseling office week after week at times who can point back to a childhood abuse where the enemy was allowed to come in because they weren't protected like they needed to be. And let me tell you something. Nothing will destroy a family faster than to take out a young girl before she even has a family. Men, we also need to train our boys. And I'm not talking about training our boys just to be good boys, right? And the definition of good boy nowadays is we sit down, we're quiet, we, do, we don't make any move, we, we write neatly, you know, we color in the lines. That's the definition of a good boy? I don't think so, but, you know, whatever. I think we need to teach our men, our young men, how to be men. I've had six or seven different men in my office over the last three weeks. And their biggest problem is they've never been taught how to be a man. I, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not... I'm not joking here, right? They don't know what it means to be a man. I pick on my sons a lot, and I know that I use them as, as, as examples in my sermons, and I probably shouldn't, and they get mad at me when I do. But I've spent the majority of my, my, my adult life making adults. I have. And there are times it's been rough. And there are times when, when my wife, she gets frustrated because I'm coming down hard on the boys. And I'm not talking about light hard. I'm not talking about, oh, don't do that. I'm talking about hard. I'm talking about like, you don't like it, there's the road. You're able to pack your bags and move anytime. You don't like my rules, there you go. I tell you this, I never once said that to my daughter. 
My daughter didn't have that right. She was home, and she'd be home today if I could have helped it. You know, I really wish I could have just kept her, but she was just, yeah, she broke free when I wasn't looking. But the boys are different. And my wife comes to me at the end. She says, you can't do that. You can't kick them out. You can't do that. And I said, Sandy, you need to back off. And this is exactly what I said. You ask her. I know she's not here today because she's sick. But I tell you, she'd be the first one to tell you. I said, back off. I'm making men. And it's hard. Because when you're tempering steel, it takes a lot of pounding. It takes a lot of heating. It takes a lot of cooling. But in the end, what you have is a forged tool that you can launch into the world and make an impact. Men, train your boys how to be men. We're not doing that well enough. So when Paul says he's pressing forward, he's reaching to this goal, he's looking for this upward call, he's seeking to be grabbed by that which has grabbed him, he's wanting something deeper, he knows it's out there, he says, I want it. I'm going to march forward in the same way which I have obtained this gospel, the same thing I got on the road to Damascus. I'm marching forward the way he's called me. He says, brethren, join me. Follow my example. Observe this walk, the same word, this stoicho, this, this idea that you're, you're marching. You're, you're those who are marching according to, to the pattern that we have laid down before. This is the direction we want to go. But here's where his heart just slips. It's almost as though I can almost see the, the tears flowing from his eyes I can almost see if he was writing this by hand which usually he didn't but if he were writing this by hand I can almost see his finger trembling as he reaches for that inkwell as he begins to rewrite this next phrase he says for many walk of whom often told you I often told you and now tell you even now weeping that they are enemies of the cross. Because, my friends, there are ways that we can walk that are not the way God wanted to. And let me tell you something. If you're not teaching your kids to walk worthy in the word of the Lord, other people are going to teach them the opposite. really comes down to whose voice is louder. Really? Is your voice going to drown out the voice of the teachers at school, the voice of the peers around the neighborhood? Is your voice going to be louder than the coaches and the other people that are screaming at them from all the other direction? Is your voice louder than YouTube and videos that you find from the internet? If they spend more time listening to that than they are listening to you, then what, what voice is really feeding them? This is what he's saying. Paul was weeping. Weeping. Verse 19 their end is destruction because the God, their God is their appetite and their shame. And in their shame, they have set their mind on earthly things. But here it is. And this is coming to the end. This is like revealing his heart. He's saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that, that in the end, I'm going to be where I need to be. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows Jesus is coming back. He's mentioned it. He's preached it. He's taught it. He's waiting for the day to happen. He doesn't know when it's going to happen, but I'll tell you, Paul, like me, like you, wants to happen like two seconds from now, right? We want it now. We want this to happen as soon as possible. In verse 21, he sums it all up and he says this. He says, who will, this is the Savior, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory and by the, ex- by the exertion of, of the power that he has even 
to subject all things to himself. He is going to conform us to his image as we seek to walk into glory with him. But it all begins back as we reach forward, as we seek to understand who Jesus is. And I know that's a hard thing. When C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant thinkers I ever met in my entire life, or I didn't meet him, I met him through his, his writing. I would have loved to meet him. I'd like write that date down on my calendar. He said when he came to know Christ, he gave all that they knew of himself to all that he knew of God. And he freely admitted that he knew very little about himself and he knew even less about God. But he reached forward. Down through the ages, there have been hundreds and hundreds of amazing preachers. This week, I was reading Jonathan Edwards. I always like to go old school on on people every once in a while. And he had a, a sermon about true virtue. He says that where our heart truly is, that's where we're going to be. If our true virtue is to focus on national pride, then, then we're going to think our nation is, all, is, the, is the greatest nation on the planet and every other nation is, is worse. You know, we are number one. Everybody else is number two. We're lower. That's how we're going to feel, right? We like that idea. But should that be our focus? Well, Jonathan Edwards said no. He said if, 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 our, true, if our true virtue, our true love, our true feelings are in anything other than Jesus Christ and his saving power, then we have set our sights far too low. Now, if you're sitting here day and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, if you've never had that moment where you've been able to bow down and accept him as your Savior, then, then you're missing out on every source of power you possibly can be. But I know there's people out here in the congregation that love him. I know you have try, you're trying to follow him the best you can, but I know there are weeks that you struggle. There are times when you just wander. When the call is too loud and you have to step away from it because it's too much. It's happened to all of us. It happened to Paul. But I can promise you this, that no matter where you wander, no matter how far you fall, he's always going to be there to pick you up. And you're going to find that he's right there with you. I remember thinking when I was running from the Lord and really struggling with what he wanted me to do. That I remember thinking that if I could just get back to where I was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, I'll be where God wants me. And I remember a, a, a nice, kindly lady in the church came to me and said, well, well Al, you just, just come to Sunday school. Come to church. Come start, start, start fellowshipping with us. And I tell her, I say, I need to get things right first, right? I need to get my heart right first. I'm not quite yet there. I, there's some things I need to work out before I step into the room, right? Because as though you walking into this room is going to profane the room. Like it's all of a sudden going to no longer be holy because you stepped in the room. Because we're all holy. We're all perfect, right? We've got it all worked out. Well, that's what other people see sometimes. They look at this. But that's when God had to come to me and say, you know, you don't have to go back because I'm not back there anymore. I'm right next to you. You don't have to turn around and take steps back. You just have to start walking forward with me. And so you may be here in that place this morning. You may have, have struggled and not, and not really know where the Lord is leading you. Maybe you don't know exactly what it is he wants for you. Maybe you're, you're looking at your kids or your life or your spouse and you're wondering, how did we get so far off the mark? Truth is, you don't have to go very far to be back on the mark. 
It all begins right here. You can start at the altar. You can kneel down. You can ask God to forgive you. You can move forward in a path that he wants you. I think that we all have times where we wander a bit. And we need to ask ourselves what God is calling us to do. I had a really wonderful illustration from my childhood I was going to show you. I was going to, I spent like, I want to say maybe a good couple hours writing it down, remembering it, preparing it. It's pretty lengthy, you know, it's like this long. It's like, what, 500 words? I don't need to tell you a story. Truth is, you just need to get Jesus. If you're not chasing him, start. If you stop chasing him, start. If you are chasing him, run faster. You know? Last week I asked you guys what was in your well. This week I'm asking you, how fast are you chasing Jesus? If you haven't started your race, come down front. We'll put you on the mark. We'll fire the gun, and we'll show you how to run. If you're already running, but you're not running well, I encourage you, come forward, and we'll help you. When I was seeing Don, because my shoulder was messed up, my back was all askew, my neck was bad, my foot was hurting. Basically, I was an old man, and and I was dying. And um, Don said, you know, you've been walking wrong probably for, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, Um, And he said, you know, if you walk wrong, you're going to hurt. If you run wrong, you're going to hurt. If you lift wrong, you're going to hurt. If you throw a board wrong, you're going to (laughs) hurt. You can't, this this is basic physics. This is how the body works. And sometimes you need someone like Don to tell you how to run, throw, jump, right. Sometimes you need somebody like Brother Tom to show you how to build a, Build a house right. (laughs) Or sometimes you just need to go to God and ask him how how to run right. So this morning I encourage you to run. Run in the manner that God has put forth before you. I encourage you to walk worthy of his calling. I encourage you to train your children to do the same. If you don't know him, don't leave here today without getting to know him. And for the rest of us, let's run faster. In Jesus' name, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your son. We come before you because of what your son did for us on the cross. We come before you because we don't know where else to go. Father, we come before you because we we can't run away from you. We We can't step aside any longer. Father, we know that you haven't passed us up. You haven't benched us or sidelined us. That you are tempering us and growing us because you have a plan for us. And each and every one of us are members of the same team. Father, I ask you to use us for your will. Father, I ask you to sharpen us when we need sharpening, strengthen us when we need strengthening, repair us when we get broken. But Father, keep using us. Father, I just ask that you will send your angels and your power down upon this peninsula in a way you haven't done before. Father, I ask you to drive out the enemy in every dark place. Father, I ask that you will eliminate the pain that he's causing in the lives of the families in our community. Father, I ask you to allow us as your servants to be that healing touch that they need. Lord, you've chosen us here at First Baptist to be your hands and feet in this community.
Help us to be the example you've called us to be. Father, I ask that you encourage us as we seek to run and walk strongly in your word. Lord, give us a pathway forward. Allow us to find the applications that your word has for us. Allow us to use those applications in a way that will overcome the enemy's strongholds, not only in our life, but in the lives of our family and our friends. Father, we ask that you'll see his king, your kingdom, grow in a mighty and powerful way. Father, we pray for the other churches that are right now closing their services just like we are. Father, we ask that your word will have been preached in every one of them and that message will go forward and that lives will be touched and changed. Father, we know you have a great thing planned for us. As we seek to move forward, we ask that you will guide us and direct us and keep us ever before your face. Lord, as we open up the altar, we ask if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Father, I ask that you'll come upon them so powerfully that they will not be able to leave here today without getting their heart right. For the rest of us, Father, that love you and know you, help us to run, help us to run straight, strong, and ever forward as we seek to know you more and to love you in greater and more powerful ways. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Phil.